Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Well, good morning and welcome to Horizon West Church Online. Last week, Nikki and I and the kids were doing s'mores or attempting to do s'mores in our backyard. And the propane tank uh, was on empty. And I didn't realize that. So I'm, I'm trying to get this thing started. It's not working. And Nikki finally says, uh, look, uh, let's just try to build a fire. Um, we'll just gather some sticks and some leaves and we'll just light this thing. And I'll be honest, I thought she was crazy. I thought there's no way. We're not like camping, fire building kind of people. We had no lighter fluid. <laughs> And that she thought we could just build a fire in her backyard. But she starts collecting sticks, and I'm trying to be a good husband and dad, so I'm gathering leaves, and we put all those things together. And she kicks into some kind of Girl Scout mode I didn't know she had and starts fanning the the embers of this newborn uh, fire that she has created. And sure enough, within about two minutes, we've got a fire. And that fire grew and lasted for about 30 minutes while we did s'mores that evening with our kids. I was really, really surprised to say the least. I tell you that story because what Nikki was able to do was with a few sticks and leaves to ignite a fire uh, that served the purpose of us being able to create s'mores. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 this morning and what Peter is going to attempt to do, what the word of God is going to attempt to do for us this morning is to ignite a fire, to kindle a fire in our hearts that will reignite our passion for God. And so let's dive in here. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Peter writes this, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged and uh, with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now let me go to a technical place before we jump into these truths that we're going to see from Peter. And that's just simply this. I was asked a question about this earlier in the week by one of our small groups, and so I want to unpack it here. The question is, Peter refers to uh, this as being his second letter. What's Peter talking about? Well, the most natural reading would lead us to believe he's referring to First Peter, right? This is Second Peter, and he's saying this is now my second letter, but there's a problem. And the problem is that it appears his first letter has been written to Gentile, uh, or rather Jewish Christians. This second letter seems targeted toward Gentile or non-Jewish Christians. So how is it the second letter? Well, here's a possibility. It's possible that what we have as Second Peter is actually a third letter that Peter has written, and there's a letter in between the two written to the same audience, but that we do not have in the canon of Scripture. That's possible. 
That's what happened with Paul's letter to the Laodiceans that he tells the church at Colossae to read. We don't have the letter, but we know he wrote it. But let me propose another possibility. Again, this is a little bit technical, and and you can tune back in with me in a minute if you need to. But John Piper in his Desiring God website notices that there is a close link between 2 Peter and the letter of Jude, another New Testament letter. Now, Jude was a brother of Jesus and also of James, the writer of the letter of James. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 indicates that Jesus' brothers have, are, are traveling on missionary journeys, possibly even with the Apostle Peter. That's 2 Corinthians 9.5 if you want to look it up. So it's possible that Jude is with Peter and maybe writing as his agent. So in other words, Peter is dictating this letter to Jude, the brother of Jesus and James, and it's Peter's thoughts, it's Peter's pastoral heart, but coming through the pen of Jude. If that is in fact the case, this second letter would be a reference to not 1 Peter being the other, but actually the letter of Jude. It would work like this. They're so similar, the two letters, 2 Peter, especially chapter 3, and Jude, that perhaps Jude is writing as Peter's agent and goes, man, I've got to get this off quickly. I've got to send this content quickly. And so he sends a letter of Jude immediately, finishes the letter of 2 Peter, and sends it as a follow-up. Where, why would I go there? Well, in Jude, he says to the people he's writing, I, I intended to write to you about our common faith, but I thought it necessary to address another issue first. So there's this interesting interplay here that tells us that maybe this second letter is actually a reference to the fact that Jude has already sent a previous letter. Now he's writing on Peter's behalf. One final note, and then we're going to get past this part of it. One final note is that in 1 Peter, the author addresses himself as Petros. That's the Greek for Peter. But in 2 Peter, he addresses himself as Simeon Petros, Simon Peter. Did you know that the only other place where Peter is referred to as Simeon is Acts chapter 15, where the apostle James, the brother of Jesus and Jude, refers to Peter as Simeon. And then here again in 2 Peter, we see it written Simeon. So just some interesting thoughts that may or may not, if you have interest in getting more of that content, you can just Google who wrote 2 Peter and go to Desiring God's website for that. But moving beyond that, I want to get past who wrote it or who actually wrote down the words of 2 Peter. And I want to get to why it was written because this is what God intends for us to be focused on this morning. And again, Peter is writing to stir up or ignite us toward godly living. He's going to give us three truths. Here's the first. Number one, the truth is under assault. The truth is under assault. Earlier this week on the treadmill, I was listening to a band called Mute Math, and Mute Math has a song called Clipping. This is the words, and see if this doesn't resonate with you in 2020. I don't know how to feel anymore. I don't know what is real anymore. I don't know what is right anymore. I don't know who to fight anymore. I don't know who to trust anymore, anymore. Isn't that so much the world that we live in in our generation? I hear people almost daily saying, I just don't know what to believe anymore. And so we had the advent of the fact checkers and they were to come along and help us to figure out what was uh, true information, what was false information. But then some people started noticing, man, I don't know that everything the fact checkers are saying checks out. And so we have now fact checkers checking the fact checkers. And my guess is we're going to need fact checkers checking the fact checkers who check the fact checkers. 
And Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, right? Like, this is just the world that we live in. There is an onslaught against the truth. Shouldn't surprise us. Should not surprise us. Listen to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Peter's saying we're in a battle. We have an enemy waging war against us. And there's recently, in the last few generations, there's been a tactical shift on the part of the enemy from attacking propositional truths, lowercase t, truths, such as the inspiration of scripture, the divinity of Christ, the reality of God's creative process in Genesis 1. Now the enemy is attacking truth, capital T. He he wants to bring us to a place where we just throw up our hands and go, I don't even know if truth can be known. I, I don't even know if truth exists in the world because if we don't know truth, we can't know God. You see, God is truth. God's word reveals truth. And there is an onslaught against truth in our world. That's why Peter begins the chapter with these words. 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2 says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. If that sounds familiar, it's because Peter says almost the exact same thing in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Uh, The point is this, though we may not, uh, or rather, though we may have questions about how scripture was written or even who was actually writing down the content, there is no question about why it was written or who was supervising the process. And Peter's going to say, I'm writing these things by power of the Holy Spirit to stir you up to remember what is true, to recall to mind what you know to be true, the faith that you have so that you can be positioned, so that you can be ignited in your passion for God. You need to know that the New Testament writers saw themselves as building on a foundation. Peter cites the prophets. He cites the Lord Jesus and the apostles in verse 3. In other words, Peter's saying truth is not about discovering something new. It's rather going back and recovering what is old and what is true. The gospel that was originally revealed to you, this is where truth is found. The scripture, the word of God, is the source of truth. Listen too to 1 Peter 1, 10 and 12. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." I think essentially what Peter's saying is this. The prophets pointed forward and predicted the coming Messiah, which is Jesus. The apostles looked back into very recent history as eyewitnesses and pointed to Jesus. And the church's role for the last 2,000 years has been to recall the teachings, the way, the truth of Jesus, and to bring it to bear in our world. 
Not some new, crazy, cool, creative idea that we're supposed to dust up, but something that's been there all along, the truth of God. But Peter says not everybody's going to lay hold of this truth. He uses the word scoffers in modern vernacular. That would be mockers, people who are going to mock Christianity. Or we might call them in the 21st century haters. There's going to be people that are just haters. They, they don't believe what we believe. They don't hold to the faith that we hold. And these haters, these mockers, these scoffers will have a premise and a conclusion, Peter says. Their premise is this. Everything in the world is going on like it always has been. And their conclusion to that premise is that Jesus hasn't come back at this point. So he's not coming back. Well, it's possible to make something sound logical that is completely illogical. I'll give you an example. This is something my dad jokingly told me when I was younger. Uh, God is love. Love is blind. Stevie Wonder is blind. Therefore, Stevie Wonder is God. You go, man, when you say it fast enough, that kind of sounds logical. The problem is, it's not logical, is it? Logic depends on building connected truths to come to a right conclusion. If anywhere in the process there is an illogical supposition or premise, you're going to have a faulty outcome. In other words, faulty premise, faulty conclusion. So let's look at the premise of these scoffers, these haters. They say everything in the world is as it has always been. Eh, not true. Not true. Did you know when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God in the Gospels, he said it's like a seed, a small little mustard seed that's planted in the earth. And even though it's the smallest of seeds, over time it grows to become the largest of trees so that even birds perch in its branches. What's happening over time is that that seed, which is almost indiscernible to the eye, is growing to become a gargantuan tree. And in the same way, the last 2,000 years have been 2,000 years of the kingdom of God bursting forth into the world. Things are not stagnant. God has not been sitting on his hands for 2,000 years. He's been building and growing his kingdom in the earth. But... There are some things that have to happen before he returns. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You say, man, everything's like it's always been. There's been no changes. Why, why you know, if Jesus was going to come back, he'd already done it. No, not true. Why? Because Jesus wants the gospel, the good news of salvation, to penetrate every tribe and nation and language and people group in the world. And he's waiting for that moment. He's not going to return until that moment. And by the way, we've made tremendous strides, even in the last 150 years, in getting the gospel to all corners of the earth. We've been able to utilize things like the invention of flight, the invention of telecommunication, the advent of internet and social media, the gospels bursting forth, the tools and technology are increasingly at our disposal to complete the mission God has given us. He's just not yet ready to return. Here's the second truth that Peter is going to give us to ignite our passion for God. Second truth is this, God's plan is unfolding. Go back to the text with me, 2 Peter 3, verses 8 to 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, 
and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. If you've ever traveled with young kids, uh, you know that the age-old and most irritating question that you can ever get on a road trip from a young child is this, are we there yet? A little while back, we were on a trip to Atlanta to see family, and my little boy, Jonah, four years old, dad, are we there yet? We had not left the neighborhood. (laughs) I said, son, you're going to have to sit tight because we got a long way to go. But what is it about kids that constantly ask this question, are we there yet? Well, the reason is that kids have a different view of time than we have, right? Young kids, man, 20 minutes is an eternity. If you have a young kid sit on their bed for 20 minutes, if you tell them to wait 20 minutes for for ice cream, I mean, that feels like forever, but it doesn't feel like that for us. In fact, adults will say things like, man, he was four years old and just in the blink of an eye, he's 18, right? Because we have a different view of time. What, what Peter is not saying, what Peter is not saying is that this is a mathematical formula. One day is to God like a thousand years. And, and there's people that have actually tried to enforce this as a, like, okay, well, six days of creation, that actually means 6,000 years because to God a day is like a thousand years. Not the point, not what Peter's saying. Peter isn't using a mathematical formula to explain God's view of time. He's simply saying it doesn't work like it works for us. God has a longer view. He has an eternal view of time. And so when we get anxious, we go, man, why isn't this happening yet? Why hasn't he returned yet? Why hasn't this come yet? God is not anxious. He doesn't see time the way we see it. And friends, I'm speaking in theological terms about the return of Christ because that's where Peter is going. But the truth is this can be a great encouragement for all of the things that we have asked God and sought him for, whether it be financial breakthrough or, or hope for our marriage or a prayer in the life of our child. God isn't anxious. He's not running on a tight schedule. Time is different for him than it is for us. So if God isn't bound by time, it still begs the question, why has he not returned? I alluded to it already, but this is Peter's answer in a nutshell. He hasn't returned because he's patiently giving the world time to repent and to turn to him. It's like when I tell my children to clean their room. And I say, that room better be clean by the time I get in there. And then I give them time. And if I'm being honest, sometimes I give them a little more time than I plan to because I want it to be clean. I don't want to punish them. I don't want to bust up in the middle and go, hey, gotcha, you didn't clean your room and here I am to give you consequences. I want to be patient. I may even wait outside the door because when I come in the room, it's going to be too late. But I want to give them time. I want to give them time to do what I've asked them and commanded them to do. And the truth this morning, and it's a beautiful truth, is that God desires for every person in every nation, in every generation of history, to come to a saving knowledge of him through faith in Jesus. That's God's desire. He's like the parent waiting outside the door saying, I'm going to just give you a little more time, a little more time. The gospel hasn't reached everyone yet. Not everybody's turned yet. I want to give more time. It's not because he's impotent. It's not because he's busy or distracted. He is patient. And he's waiting to see more come to him for salvation. But Peter points out in the passage, there will come a point when the time is up and the window of God's patience has closed. And friends, this is going to feel sudden when it comes. 
Like in the days of Noah, and Peter talks about this earlier in the chapter, doesn't he? Like in the days of Noah, man, when that rain started falling, I can promise you the people of Noah's day went, what is going on? Where did this come from? But God had been warning them, hadn't he? We know from the New Testament that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, calling out these warning signs of this coming flood. The people simply did not listen. It was not without warning. This is what Paul says in Acts 17, verses 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The problem is that the unbelieving world simply and deliberately ignores God's invitation to salvation. That's verse five. It's deliberate. You think, man, they seem like pretty good people. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what they're doing, what the unbelieving world is doing is saying, my terms, my way, my time, not yours. They're deliberately overlooking God's redemptive plan. So how do we respond? Christians, how do we respond if these things are true? If the truth is under assault, If God's plan is yet unfolding, what is next for us? This is the final truth I would give you. God's people must or should stand out. Let me finish the passage, the part that we're going to be reading today, verses 11 to 13 of 2 Peter 2, or or rather 2 Peter 3. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holy and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, I believe the coming judgment, or you might use the word justice of God, should be part of igniting a passion uh, for God within us, which then translates into radical commitment to the person and the purpose of Christ. So the coming judgment, the coming justice of God that he's going to deliver on the earth should kindle, should ignite that spark within us to be radically committed to his person and his purposes. Peter uses the words in verse 11, holiness and godliness. That word holiness pretty simply means set-apartness. It means distinctiveness. Peter says, because these things are true, people of God, you should be different. You should be distinct from the world. Same thing that Paul preached in Philippians 2, verses 14 to 16. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is going to give us a a, a word picture. He said, man, you guys are like stars in the universe. You're shining out your light, the light of Christ in you, in a dark, dark world. And we as believers are doing just that. The darker it gets around us, the more truth becomes under assault, the more the light can shine, the more the truth can, can be manifest in a way that points to Jesus. Now, let me say a word about this phrase, the day of God, or, or in, earlier in the chapter, the day of the Lord, or the day of Christ. All, all of these are, are kind of speaking to the same thing. Um, and, and some would ask, well, is the day of the Lord like a, a day, or is it an age? And, and we could really quickly degenerate into conversations about rapture and tribulation and all of these things. But I think the point is less about getting our charts right. That's not what Peter is talking about. 
He's not trying to sort all that stuff out. It's less about getting our charts right and it's more about being ready and preparing a people to be ready to meet their king. However that happens in in some future time that God has already fixed, the the question for us is, are we going to be ready and are we going to prepare the people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends and family members for the fact that the king will return and there will be judgment, there will be justice in the earth. Are we ready for that moment? Peter says as believers, we're to wait and hasten the day. We're to have a holy anticipation or eagerness for the return of Christ. Now, what's interesting is that scripture views the people of God as distinct, especially in the New Testament, as distinct from the world they live in. This is just a little bonus thought, but I have watched over the 38 years of my life as the church has tried to be more and more relevant, more and more cool and hip to our culture. And I don't know that we haven't maybe sacrificed something along the way. Yes, we need to be relatable. Yes, we need to be understanding. Yes, we need to be with the times. But friends, it's not our coolness or our hipness or our relatability that's going to win people to Jesus, right? Peter actually says, and other writers of scripture says things like this, you are sojourners and exiles in the world, 1 Peter 2.11. You're strangers on earth, Hebrews 11.13. You are a peculiar people, that's 1 Peter 2.9 in the King James Version. And my personal belief is that the American church needs to recover its place as an odd exception to what is normative in our society and in our culture. We we should be different. We should look different. We shouldn't always be trying to fit in to what's going on around us. Translation, our faith should stand out in our world. Now let me give you two words of caution as we kind of land the plane here this morning. First, being a peculiar people does not mean being weirdos, (laughs) okay? It's not what it means. Uh, We need to do a better job of critically examining the many new ideas, claims, and theories that are abounding in our world. They're not all true. They're not all false. We need to critically examine. Jesus calls us to this. Be as shrewd as serpents, yet as innocent as doves. So it doesn't mean that we're weirdos or wackos. The other caution I'd give you is this. The more you hitch your wagon to a political party or a political candidate, the less visible your allegiance to Christ and the gospel will be. You need to hear that. The more you hitch your wagon to a particular political party or candidate, the less visible your witness to Jesus will become. In other words, you'll begin to stand out for the wrong reasons. As I was preparing this week, I actually went into some things on this that I don't have time and don't feel it's the appropriate uh, avenue to share. But if you want to go to my Facebook page, Christopher Ogden, I I shot a five-minute video talking about how Christians should engage in the political process because I do think it's important. But yet we, we are a peculiar people. We're not to fit in neatly or nicely with any institution or organization even if we believe in its basic premise. We, we need to be a peculiar people. So let's finish with this, 2 Peter 3, verse 13. Let's go back to that. Peter writes this, but according to his promise, God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I think what Peter's telling us, what I want to tell you in 2020, the best is not behind us, it is in front of us. 
The best is not behind us, it's in front of us. We are waiting for what is the best yet to come. The new heavens, the new earth, the final consummation of God's redemptive plan where we won't be under the leadership of a government, a president, a congress. We'll be under the leadership, the good leadership of a risen savior named Jesus. That is the primary place our focus needs to be in this world. Our ultimate aim is not a better America, though we should want that and strive for it. Our ultimate aim is a new world in which Christ rules and reigns. This is so important. So let me ask you a question as we prepare to close. Would people in your workplace, at your family reunion, or on your social media feed, would they know that that's your ultimate aim? Not, not an improved government or improved America, but that your ultimate aim is a new heaven and new earth where Christ reigns. Would they know that by your conduct, your speech, your post? Or have you muddied the waters? Have you stood out in the wrong kind of ways that dilute the gospel and your witness to the watching world? The last verse I'll leave you with, 1 Peter 1.13 says this, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Faith that eagerly anticipates the return of Christ is a faith that stands out. In just a second, we're gonna close with a song called Christ Be Magnified. And it really is the right song. Justin and I talked about it this week. It really is the right song to, to put all of our heart into singing together because when our faith stands out, our Christ is magnified. And when Christ is magnified, scripture says, when I be lifted up, Jesus, when Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And so let's sing this together. Let me pray as we prepare to sing. God in heaven, I am mindful of the time that it took to share this morning. And yet I'm more mindful of the word that you had for us. God, I'm more mindful of the fact that you are purifying your church that your plan is unthwarted and it is unfolding before our eyes, God, that when we look to what is above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, we see the power of your redemptive purpose. We see that the gates of hell cannot stand against what you are doing. We are not a defeated people. We're an overcoming people. And God, the political tumultuousness, the, the, the crazy chaos of our age, it doesn't shake you. It doesn't thwart your plan. You reign we look to you. Christ, would you be magnified in my life? Would you be magnified in our church? Would the world see Christ magnified through us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.